I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape. New York City is home to a variety of alternative art spaces, but perhaps none have a story like this. In the mid-1980s, a group of squatters took over an abandoned building on Manhattan's Lower East Side. They broke in using a sledgehammer and made the place their own, even putting on art shows and plays in the space. They called the location Bullet Space. We'll find out why a little later in the episode. Andrew Castrucci and Alexander Rojas are artists and residents of Bullet Space. Andrew's been living there for over 30 years. He was one of the original squatters. They recently took me on a tour of the building and explained why Bullet Space is far from just another transformed tenement in the concrete jungle. My name's Andrew Castrucci, and I've been... uh living at Bullet Space since 1985-86. I'm one of the co-founders of the of the group and that's it. We'll give you a tour of the our underground museum space down here then we'll take you upstairs. Hi I'm Alex Rojas and I'm a co-director of Bullet Space and I've been here since 2000. Andrew I understand it started off with a guitar case and a sledgehammer. Uh, yes, uh, there was a squatters movement down here in um, the early to mid-80s, and Tanesh Weber was sort of the guiding force to pull us all together. We were, me and my brother from A&P Gallery and a group of artists from Remington Street. One night, uh, uh, Tanesh came down the block with two of her friends as lookouts, and she had a sledgehammer in her guitar case, and uh, she broke into the, the back of the building uh, we were pretty organized as squatters of what to do. And there was also a lot of European squatters that migrated here. So their experience in Berlin and Amsterdam, they, they were also uh, our guiding force. Uh, so we ex- we had a sh- strong cultural exchange. And Europe, too, was natural a squad, a post-World War II landscape. Uh, whereas us, we had our, our war zone was the South Bronx or Low East Side. So that was the technique. You break into the building, you go after city-owned buildings. Half the neighborhood was filled with abandoned buildings. It was similar to the South Bronx in the 70s, uh, early 80s. Uh, and then the next day, uh, me and my brother, Toyo, uh, and Tanesh and a crew, we, we started uh, working. We had work days to gut out the building. And then Tanesh was the first one to move in with my brother in that summer of or spring summer of eighty six. What condition uh, was the building in when a, you entered? It was abandoned for ten years. And so uh we took the sledge home sledgehammer and broke open I broke open the windows on the second, third, fourth and fifth floor and we unscrewed the the plywood windows because you needed ventilation for gutting out the building. Uh and we would have work days, you know, every week. But we would have to come in illegally, and then we um, we came through the back. Then we eventually put on a front door, uh, and that's when we started living here. Uh, when we first started squatting, uh, there was one funny confrontation. There were undercover detectives on the on the roof with leather coats and you know typical you know at a American gangster or something. You know, so they come down the steps, and, and then we're coming up the steps, and so we're. Uh, we go to the guys, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, well, what are you doing here? You know, so then we all both all started laughing because there was strong drug activity on the block. Bullet was the name brand of heroin that existed on the block. It was the strongest form of heroin, the most popular. 
so while we were living here, you would hear that that chatter all night, bullet, 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 selling their product. So uh, we said, let's just name it bullet, but let's not romanticize drug culture. Let's use it bullet as art as a weapon. Reclaim or, the word. Yeah, yeah. appropriate it from... So, so, from what was yeah. happening outside. And there was also Don Perignon, who said another brand. So there was yes. all these things happening here. And that was the, like my upstairs neighbors said, the the soundtrack to their life when they lived here. They constantly heard that over and over. It was kind of yeah, like... Bullet, bullet, bullet. So I like when you <clears throat> say that we reclaim the name. And then uh, we were all artists in the building. Uh, so, so we used it as uh, art as a weapon or to, to, for us to exist here. And we eventually won. You know, uh, eventually the city sold us the building. We made we made for a lot. dollar. Am I right? A dollar. Um, it was I think two hundred and fifty dollars an apartment, but uh, so it wasn't quite a dollar. But then the deal was you had to bring it up to code. The New York Post said we got the building for a dollar. Yeah, uh, we were on the cover of the Post because we were the first homestead group, squatter group that got legalized in that that period uh there were 11 buildings uh post Tompkins square park riots so they they, they went after us but the deal was you, you had to borrow a million dollars from the bank and bring it up to code so it wasn't so, dollars it, really it was a lot more than that <laughs> we're still paying for it we have like a 60-year mortgage kind yeah, of we, we have, have a 30-year mortgage yeah. and then we carry it over another 30 years with a low interest uh so but we have strict resale policy which is good so it stays to low-income uh housing for artists how many uh, people live in the building now that's a good question. There's a couple of kids There's been about, born. So. Uh, 14, including the kids. Uh, it's a small tenement. And when we squatted the building, it was also, uh, we have less living space because we wanted workspace and living space, uh, not just a place to live. You have to have a life. Uh, and then we have an exhibition space. So that's why our rents are a little higher because we have this, the ground floor is a big exhibition space. And then we also had a print shop for 10 years. Uh, so You so, actually printed a book even way back when, right? A yeah. book called Your House is Mine. There it is. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. That was printed here in the print shop and they used the, uh, back then there was no running water in the building. So you used a lot of uh, buckets from the fire hydrant as well. We hooked right? up a hose to the fire hydrant. And of course you had to clean your screens. We, we made a makeshift bathtub. Steve Harrington was involved with that. And we had a print shop for 10 years. We also were printing at the Lower East Side print shop. Uh, but most of the posters were done here. And that was our act of resistance. And in my lifetime, there were two major art projects that we did that changed the course of our existence. You know, because most of my artwork is more personal and it's more apolitical. But sometimes you're in a choice where you don't, I mean, you don't have a choice if you want to exist. So we made these posters after the Tompkins Square Park riots uh, and uh, we turned it into a book project. We worked on it for five years and we got legalized because of the, the artifacts we made. So we, we had to prove to the city we weren't a bunch of runaway kids or junkies or a shooting gallery. So what kind of content is in this book? I think it's more, this book especially, it's Andrew's work. It's a, it's a reaction to the warehousing of property and uh, the Tompkins Square Park rides, homelessness. And I think Andrew could speak more on it. Cause yeah. The funny part was it uh, the city was trying to evict us. We were going to court. And meantime, the public library gave us $5,000 for the book. So the, the, that beautiful Kafka-esque kind of castle thing. Uh, they were trying to evict us, yet they were supporting us. The city was acknowledging us at the same time. So, so you uh, created many of these. This was an edition of 150 books. So Museum of Modern Art bought one. Uh, they're in museums all over the world. And uh, the Library of Congress 
and the Metropolitan Museum recently bought one. There's only a couple books left out of the edition of 150. Each artist got a book. And we should describe this book a little bit for our audience who can't see it. This is a big book. This it is a heavy... 17, p- se- 17 pounds. 17 pounds. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. And it's all handmade silk screen, so it's original work. And a lot of the... It's also a homage to the artists that are gone because a lot of the artists here are no longer with us, like Martin Wong, David Wanarovich, and uh, other Miguel, friends. Uh, P- Pinero, yeah. Joan Ellis, the poet, Allen Ginsberg... This first piece here by Anton Van Dalen illustrates the weight of this figure carrying a brick building on its shoulders. So um, Alexander spoke about the book, uh, the theme, but part of it was our existence to live here as squatters. And But then there was a whole homeless crisis. There was an AIDS epidemic. There was an economic crash. Uh, so all of those fit into the umbrella of the theme. Uh, but it was also, it was a, a street project. So we printed 10,000 posters by hand uh, with over 100 artists and, and poets and writers and community people and children and, and teenagers. It was a mixed bag of graffiti artists. And we kind of championed high and low art, self-taught artist or graffiti artist, high art. So that is part of the book project. Artists like Stash and Lee Canonis and Lady Pink and Days, uh, besides the more formal graphic uh, artist. This was, uh, if you could, if you, if I take you in here, I said we printed 10,000 posters by hand. So we, we had 33 posters in the book. So we printed 300 of each. Half of them were we pasted on the street. And that, this here encompasses like 10 years of we pasting posters. So it was sort of street theater of posters and graphics. Back in the day, too, you had so many canvases because there were all these abandoned buildings. So you put up a row of I would do installations of 50 posters. I would repeat them. And then someone said uh, it kind of beautified the neighborhood. It was like a window next to the banded building. So back then for graffiti artists, it was easy to... And we had a, a function, a social function. We would, we would bring them back to the neighborhood. Someone said it looks like a quilt, like a gorilla quilt. All the c- beautiful colors. But yet it was still decorative and like a quilt. But yet it had strong, potent concrete uh, visceral because graphics it, it too, talked about really... what was happening on the street and the the social aspect of it and kind of making you aware of it in a visual language of a poster and and that's kind of engaging when you're walking around the street and seeing that i look for that stuff now and you know like one of the posters a... said enjoy azt <laughs> uh with the coca-cola logo one of them said we the people with a big fish hook another one said slow down children growing with uh, john fechner with a big uh floppy disc chasing the kid on a street sign the enjoy azt was vincent gagliostro but now we see advertising right so that landscape's completely changed so this really is a beautiful document um, what we're looking at now. Yeah, I was going to say a, it's a historical document. Right, of the time and of a place that's no longer here, and it's now it's a very different place. I mean, now it's on Houston Street, and I was like, wow, I feel like I'm in Palm Beach or something with the kind of art that's up. It doesn't feel to me sincere to what New York is, but, you know, that's just times changing and very different. I mean, I feel like it's like a Malibu Barbie kind of setting. I don't know. It, I don't want to criticize, but I, that's what it feels like. It, feel, it doesn't feel like an authentic New York that this was. This was real. I used to come down here to see the hardcore shows, and I, I think I knew of him before I met him years, to, you know, from walking around and seeing this stuff up on the street. So it's interesting that that exchange. Maybe that's what brought us together. 
Yeah, when did you first get involved with Andrew and Bullet Space? I think it was in the Zero Book. The Zero Book, through. but even before that, I, I, I've known of him like in the late 90s. I, I came to know of him, and I kind of had a radar the, out the hardcore, to... The hardcore punk shows, uh, we've... We crossed paths. Yeah, he, but we he, met. We met working on a book on called. It was the year two thousand. <laughs> so we working on a, an artist book called Zero. Yeah, uh, just dealing with. Because I worked in Soho uh, with uh, with artists over there since I was a kid. So I was here a lot, and we kind of crossed paths. How did you manage to live in a building without plumbing and without heat? Well, it wasn't easy, but when you're in your twenties, you could you have an extra strength totally and. Uh, you, t- you could tolerate a lot. On one hand, the quality of life was very simple, and you know I didn't have to go to a gym. You know I would chop wood. I would carry a five-gallon thing of water up five flights of stairs every other day. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know I gained twenty pounds when we got legalized because we uh, I wasn't chopping wood anymore, carrying my water. We had a, a fire hydrant when Tanesh picked out the building. Uh, you know. I don't know if she did it on purpose or not, but there was a fire hydrant right in front of the building. So that's very important for squatters. It's all well. It's your your meeting ground. But also, this uh, building has some kind of funny history. Hans Hock did that piece, and it's one of this is one of the buildings in, that's mentioned in Hans Hock research of this project that he did. Right? Isn't that? Well, Hans Hock, people like Hans Hock and David Hammonds were artists that we would look up to, us and uh, and Joseph Boyce, art for that had a social element to it, a social sculpture. And Hans Hack uh, did a piece at the Guggenheim uh, where he... he well, it was shown at the Guggenheim, but... He, he had all these... Buildings that he documented that were owned by a notorious slumlord in New York City. He, they had yeah. over like 60 buildings or some insane number, and he kind of documented them in like a record of what had happened. He actually did it's, it specifically for the Guggenheim, and the, and the yeah. show was canceled because I think their board of directors was this real estate developer, Shabulski, and yeah. we were one of those buildings by accident. So uh, when we squatted the building, so like Alexandra said, it had a good spirit to it because Hans Hacked kind of blessed it. Yeah. So uh, it, in the curiosity of that, and that, and that when we think here, when we're, we we spend a lot of time rattling, right? we're artists, so you know we're relentlessly thinking of these strange points of connection, you know, that is an interesting thing in itself. And then now how real estate, we get hit up by real estate. Oh, you want to sell your building constantly. And, and you know, when we're vilified in, in the daily, you know, this paper saying that, oh, you know, we stole the building to make a profit. And the whole point is like, really, we don't. And we never, that was never our intent. And it was never the purpose. The purpose was to do this sort of thing. And they were still here doing it. A lot of the old homestead groups, you know, were flipping buildings. But so when our generation came around, we're super. uh, The city's super strict with our resale policy, which is good. So it stays low income artist housing forever. Like uh, John Ferris, the the famous poet that lived here for half his life, just recently passed away. But now uh, uh, it's going to his grandson, uh, who's a jazz musician. But Richard is his grandson. That he was that they had a um, had a loving relationship, relationship. Yeah. and so so that's how the building continues. It doesn't go to you know the highest bidder. But no no apartments really open up because no one wants to move out because where are you going to go you know and right. and and going back to what you said the quality of living here, it was hard. On one hand, I I said 
it was okay, but it was very hard. And and you were living under fear too. This was a a police state. Uh, the, the the city spent a decade, two decades, trying to flip it to gentrify it. And we sort of slowed up gentrification for about a decade with the Tompkins Square Park riots in our existence. So the developers were losing a lot of money by uh, you know yeah. the our stance. And uh, eventually they win. But uh, but it's strange too when the towers come down. I'm like, oh wow, they they, they managed to. The towers are about to collapse, but then we're still here. So that was an interesting irony. So, so we, and then that was a post war zone again, you know. But and that actually delayed our our, our whole process of becoming legalized because we were getting there, and then it was delayed for five years. So in was yeah, a lot going on for a long time. Exactly. We got, yeah, we we got legalized post nine eleven, but things got really scary then because building costs like quadrupled mm-hmm. insurance quadrupled so all of a sudden we were only going to borrow you know three hundred thousand dollars to renovate the building then that turns into seven hundred thousand and then eventually turns to a million and the sad part is is you know when we, we, the city put a gun to ahead if you don't get legalized homestead status we're going to evict you so you had to play ball, but playing ball means you had to give sixty uh, percent to soft costs. Sixty when you have a mortgage that goes to interest, to banks, to lawyers, project managers to, yeah. that never did anything. So basically, the poverty pimps yeah. cash in, and so when we borrow a million dollars, we really could have did it for half. more than half of that. But it had to go to soft costs, and that's the system. But we managed to work it out, and uh, our rents are. Seven hundred and fifteen dollars uh, a month, uh, and then stable, we, we. But for people who are of low income or artists, you know, I mean, that's uh, kind of like it's. We're able to live. You're maintaining the integrity of the Lower East Side when it comes to the artist community. Right, and that's other really artists have been like, priced out of this neighborhood. Oh yeah, right? which is so sad. That's why I, I look so strongly to the artists that are around me and still working. Yeah. And you know, to kind of speak back to what you were saying about how did we live here? There are actually the squatters are not just artists. There are a lot of people that we learn from, like carpenters and electricians and people who have real architects, skills, uh, architects. I mean, across the board. When you say an artist, that, be- that includes an activist or... Uh, right, because I think uh, art, squatters got a real bad rep as being like a bunch of junkies. Like, they, they got, like, when you think of it, it's like the worst of the worst. But in actuality, there were a lot of families that lived here that were, you know, a lot of the gardens and that whole movement that we see now, the composting and all this going on. That kind of started with the squatters. If you really look back at well, it, the and bike you, lanes, the you bike know, lanes, comes I mean, out of Adam stuff. Purple. But since we stole a building or got a building for a dollar or two hundred fifty dollars or a million dollars, whatever, or since our rents are low, we have an obligation to have a community space and give back to the neighborhood. Like so, that's why we we do these exhibitions. It's sort of. Uh, it gives us the freedom to do it since our, our overhead is very low. I want to go upstairs yeah. and check out the yeah. exhibition space, yeah. but I also want to check out some of oh, the, the yeah. artifacts that you have yeah. here because you uncovered some pretty amazing things while you were renovating this building, right? And also digging yeah. for a well in well, the backyard. We discovered Andy and this other artist named Austin Scholl, right? They, they, they got together and hacked up a, a, a plan to dig to hit the water table in the backyard. That was an art project. Dig a a hole hole. together. And it winded up being 100 people involved. But but me and Austin were the the spark to start digging a hole. And uh, we we, we knew we were living on top of a swamp, so we knew water, we would hit water 
you know, we didn't have to dig to China. Uh, yeah, so you wanted to hit the water table just to see, and then and a, they by found the, day of the a opening. We we hit water, and which is only three feet below what we're standing on our basement slab because the Lower East Side is built on top of a swamp. And so while we hit water, we discovered an old wall. It was an old uh, outhouse that went down 15 feet, and they're pretty common. So for the next year afterwards, with buckets, we, we kept digging till we hit 15, 13 feet. Mm -hmm. And this is what you see in front of us, all of these artifacts. Um, and they date back to... Before the 1800s, so the the oldest thing that was found at 13 feet was that shoe, and that, according to somebody who came around from Sotheby's, I, I believe, is a shoe from the late 1700s. Wow, 1790, yeah. yeah. So most of the artifacts are from the early 1800s, and you have signifiers. Uh, so you find a coin, a silver dollar that says 1830, or, or another a penny, New York penny, that says 1860. So each level has a story. So it's a story of New York with all the immigrants and so forth. Our, our actual neighbors, you know, they lived here. And according to my neighbor upstairs who did the research on this, at a certain point there are 90 people living in this building according to the census. Wow. Uh, Maggie Wrigley. Yeah, uh, Maggie. Who uh, who's been living here a long time. She dug up the research. and mm -hmm. and. It's not here, but... Yeah, we usually have it hanging on the wall. All the people that lived here. It's mostly Eastern Europeans. We're, we're built on top of an old tenant, an old building. This, this stone here is the foundation for this excavation. But our building was 1899. That was built on top of this foundation. Well, let's go upstairs and yeah. check out some of the art okay. in the exhibition sure. space. Yeah. So let's talk about this space. This is a pretty fantastic space this that you have here. This is our exhibition space. Um, and uh, it was part of our uh, philosophy when we squatted the building. We, need, we wanted a print shop. We wanted an exhibition space. We wanted a studio to work. And we wanted a place to live. Because it was so, also at that time very difficult living here. So a lot of the people involved here were artists. So this was a way to show what they were doing and get together. It was and good therapy. Kinda, right. <laughs> To, out, you know, uh, outside of, outlet, uh, of expression living. To, to have this space. Besides having work days just shoveling rubble, uh, we would break it up and have these exhibitions here. Mm -hmm. And we rotate. Everyone in the building uh, takes a couple of months uh, a year. And we basically do uh, two big shows a year. So four months of the year we're down here. She's getting ready to do uh, an exhibition late this summer. September and October. What's the exhibition? Um, it's a group exhibition by three uh, women artists. I think there's possibly four. Uh, Janice Sloan, Juanita Alonso, and uh, Susan Bruegel. And then the next show is uh, of an artist who was wonderful, who was one of the first people that came into this building, Toyo Hasuka. Uh, it's going to be featuring him um, and his work because he's a, very, he's a key figure in all this, and it's kind of like a hidden figure. So we want to try to, you know, he's, he's gone, and, but he's somebody that was, he taught me how to spackle, and, and that's why I, I helped. And Alexandra's uh, involved helped. with his son, who's a, who's a very special artist, yeah. uh, who she's Ori. working with. Uh, Ori. Ori, uh, with that show. So that's going to be kind of historical. Yeah, then I'm going to take the show later in the fall. <laughs> uh, it's a second book I'm working on called Fractured Lives. I'm going to use it as a factory. I have to collate uh, a book. Uh, 
so sometimes we use this space as a, a bookbinding shop. Workspace. Uh, a workspace. So that, that's what that'll be. It's a nine-year project uh, about fracking. So that's the second book. It's a twin uh, brother-sister to the book you saw downstairs, Your House is Mine. It's 66 screen posters versus 33. But we've been working on it for nine years off and on. We shelved it after Como banned fracking in upstate New York, but we took it off the shelf uh, a couple years ago when Trump was elected and the EPA and Pruitt and that whole situation. And again, I should mention that you shut the door, which changed the sound. Yeah, Is there a sound of what back there? I Curious. Don't know. Yeah. I think there's, I don't know what they're doing. Okay, I wasn't sure if it was. I'm always thinking, was that like a pond or some sort of stream you developed no, in the backyard now okay sort of, who knows what they're doing out there <laughs> okay. construction i think they're washing the building next door but oh, yeah, the, the pond, but speaking yeah. of the pond the, uh, the 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 stone circle out there is our the cistern that we found earlier you referenced the importance of the fire hydrant and i was here a few months back and you had an exhibit yes. about the fire hydrant it was pretty cool yeah we curated a show uh with shoot the pump as a Whitley Canones and Andrew and I, um, we kind of used to live here, and he grew up in the neighborhood, and yeah. and shooting the pump for him was a rites of passage as a young kid to open up the pump. That was your ocean. That was your Coney Island, and so the show had many levels. That was one level, but for me and Alexandra, it was for the squatters. It was our well. It was our water source. So there was that level, but uh, yeah. and, then, but, and then also there were the the that that photograph from um, the city of New York that was borrowed. There was a bunch of it was a photograph of a group of men who were actually shaving. It was during the depression. So I mean that that thing that we see every day, this fire hydrant, had so many uses throughout time. So it's kind of like bridging bridging back in time, and again making that connection, which we Andrew and I are very curious about. You know, not only are we living here now, but connecting it to like another time. We're the then, only fire hydrant that doesn't have a lock on it in the neighborhood because we kept breaking open the locks, and so we would we would weld new uh, locks. And then the fire uh, department gave us the the, so the sprinkler, so they were really cool about it, and they're like, yeah. And so the kids come and play yeah, when it gets hot. Lee and, Lee and his uh, car mechanics also welded sort of a jet stream, so we go legal and illegal. Uh, and sometimes during a heat wave, the city tolerates it when we blast it. Because uh, Lee is a pro. He could shoot with a can. Yeah, he could it's shoot. a game that kids played. You yeah. know, so to, you could to... shoot the water up into the fifth floor uh, if, he, if it's done correctly. Uh, so we go back and forth. But we've kinda, it kind of brought the neighborhood together. You know, neighbors you don't talk to all year round. All of a sudden, you're laughing and, and, and going for a swim outside. And since we have a kid... Renzo's uh, 13, so his whole generation is experiencing what Lee and his friends did. And then Lee brings over his son. And so it's a so full circle. And then we also get the skunk ike from other people who are not from New York and maybe are from California and places that water is an issue. Yes, we are aware, but we're also aware that nobody's collecting the water and keeping it safe here because... There's well, most of the times we try to do it legally with the sprinkler. But during a heat wave, it's almost a life and death situation. Yeah. You have to... Sure. So we, we go full blast just for 30 seconds, maybe a minute. or. But it's sort of a, a rites of passage for... And our neighbors come over, they bring their yeah. cars. Everybody you know, is and, and utilizing it. So yeah, everyone starts washing their cars. And, it's an and, old, uh, different kind of tradition. And people, when they see it, they're not used to it. So it's interesting mm-hmm. like that. 
you know. Poor people don't have swimming pools, and we live well, in an urban environment. Yeah. As you, I think you said New York City yeah. swimming pool, right? Yeah. And to go to Coney Island, that's a that's a got to take off. And before there are sprinklers in the yeah. parks, I mean, yeah. that's what you do. Let me ask you this question because earlier you were talking about the headlines about you and you know the anarchists, the the wacky folks. What should your headline be if you had to create your own headline about your story here at Bullet Space? Keeping it moving. Yeah. Well, well we were called cannibals uh, because there was a, a famous murder that happened. We're called communists, skinheads, anarchists. Every name in the book, left, right, center. Uh, it was humorous. I don't really complain about it. When the New York Post put you on the cover, uh, I mean, it was funny. It was uh, theater of the absurd. Uh, so, what should what should be our? Yeah. What's your headline? What's our headline? Uh, art, art is life. Uh, art is life. Yeah. That's a, digging a hole is art or life or we're still kicking. Still. Uh, Still kicking, I like that. Still I think kicking. that's. I think there's possibility in that. You know, we're. Yeah, I, I'll. Like even Alexandra that. said, I like what she said when we did the fire hydrant. So it's like play. It, it, it's it's art, but we're playing out there. And what happens when you play? Something happens. Something uh, pops up, and that's and kind of like making art. You, you yeah. play, and then you find something. And well, I'm going to go with there's still kicking. How's that? Yeah, right. I like yeah. I like that too. <laughs> All right, Andrew, thanks All right. so much. All right. Alexandra, thank you. Thank you for coming by. Andrew Castrucci has been living at Bullet Space since the mid-1980s. He was one of the original squatters who took over the building. Alexandra Rojas is a co-director of Bullet Space. She's been there since 2000. More info at bulletspace.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.